The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So another big welcome, everyone. Glad you're here today. This uh, month, July, I've been giving a series of talks on refuge. And uh, I think it was Ajahn Chah, this very well-known Thai meditation master, that uh, mentioned that we find refuge by doing a 180-degree turn. (laughs) You know, we have those basic instincts that we got, we picked up from our culture about where to find refuge. Basically, it's getting everything together. My house scene, my friendship scene, my body scene, And it's that age-old setup for all of us where we, it's that country western song, looking for love in all the wrong places, right? Whether it's wealth or health or relationship. And the thing is, you know, it's understandable that we get confused that it's a setup because when we do get our act together, relatively speaking, and we get into good shape or we have a healthy relationship with another human being or work through some of the age-old problems in our families, get involved in our community and resolve some of the ongoing suffering in our communities. So there's so many, so much good work that needs to be done in our lives and it helps doing that good work. And it can confuse us because the work is good. You know, when we take care of business in that straightforward way, we listen to our body. It's like one of the definitions of compassion is listening to the cries of the world, including our own, including our cat and dog, including our neighbors and family and responding as best we can with wisdom, with kindness. But you probably have noticed that never ends. So the mistake isn't the responding to the cries of the world. The mistake is somehow thinking that we get to the end of that. And then I can relax because we've resolved this conflict. We've taken care of this unattended pain. We've addressed this health problem in my life. And now I'm safe. And so, in a way, it puts us on a treadmill. And, you know, we're looking for release, we're looking for that peace of not being in conflict, the peace of not having a problem, not the heart being unburdened. One uh, translator, scholar, teacher, translates the word Nibbana as the unbinding of the heart. The heart gets bound up through its habits of craving, wanting this, not wanting that. And it's the unbinding. Doesn't mean we can't navigate and choose what we like and avoid what we dislike, but the heart is no longer bound up because of our unavoidable natural likings and not likings. 
we understand them. Oh yeah, heart wants this, heart doesn't want that. Get it. And things are going to play out according to so many causes and conditions. My particular preferences, they have a little say sometimes, right? But there are a lot of other things in motion that determine what comes our way, what goes away from us. So this 180 degree turn really has to, you know, almost last week I talked about fear and vulnerability, hope and fear. Maybe some of you heard the talk. And uh, in a way, as practitioners, especially once we feel relatively safe in our life, relatively unburdened, and that may, you know, for some of you, that may be a rare event. For others of you, it may be a more commonplace experience where you feel relatively safe. And then we can transform those places of fear and uncertainty in our lives into teachers. Oh, well, what happens if I move close instead of moving away from those places of fear, hiding them or thinking I'm going to fix them once and for all? And it doesn't mean we don't address the places of fear. It just means even while we're figuring out what might be an appropriate response, we're also, and more importantly, relaxing and not imagining that the, the places of fear will ever disappear in life. So doing something about this ill health I'm experiencing or this financial problem in my life or this care I have about this problem in my wider community that I want to address That movement to respond, to get involved, it isn't about this personal need for safety. It's because I care about suffering. And that way, my involvement doesn't, like my own sense of well-being, doesn't depend on stopping climate change or undoing economic injustice or racism or sexism or whatever ongoing places of suffering personally in our lives, in our wider community. We can participate, we can respond more freely, more powerfully. And it almost, you know, it can kind of strike us as wrong, like how can I possibly be free when I'm like this, or when the world's like this, or my friend is like this, has this set of circumstances. And it's just a very interesting, I mean, just even in a really simple way when we read the news, or you're hearing a good friend talk about some of the problems, difficulties in their lives, you can really see, use that as a kind of teacher, teaching. Okay, I'm looking at the news, I'm connecting with this friend, I know they've got some serious stuff going on, but I'm not going to presume that my heart has to get tight, burdened, as I look at the news, 
or connect with this friend or get involved in some activism to try to make things, make the world a better place. I'm going to move in, lean in to this activity, whether it's reading the news or responding, showing up for a friend, as if it can be the activity of freedom and love, as opposed to, I mean, just exaggerate a little, I'm desperate for some peace and release, so I'm going to deal with this in the hopes that it will lead to my peace and my release. And if it doesn't, then I've been set up again. So we invest in these interactions like, we're not there to take care of our friend, it's like, we're there to take care of ourselves, we should at least be honest. You know, imagine if we showed up, I say this sometimes, if we showed up to a friend in need or some of these places where we get involved to make the world a better place, and we were just honest, like, this injustice is really bothering me, or your cancer is really bothering me. So we got to take care of this so my heart can be at ease. You know, it's, it's, but that's often the way it is. I've talked about this maybe even last Sunday, I forget. But even the ordinary occurrence here, at least in Minneapolis, I'm assuming it's pretty common around the country, especially in bigger cities, where there are people asking for money um, at different street corners. And uh, yeah, just that I was mentioning my own tendency to almost, I mean, I know it sounds funny to say this, just wanting to survive the interaction as if the interaction is some kind of threat to my well-being. So how can I do it right so I feel good about myself or whatever it is? But it's, it's not a generous opening to the predicament of my wider community. It's like, when I'm honest, I just want to take care of the yucky feeling I'm having right now. And I'll be happy when it's over. And I don't have a uneasy reverberation, like feeling a little guilty, or feeling like I was taken advantage of, or whatever we might feel in those situations. One of the articles and the resources that I've been putting into the chat that you can take a look at if you'd like. And for those of you here in the room, uh, Robin puts these uh, Sunday resources in the blog. So you can go to the website, just look for the blog. And so often, you know, for a month of talks, I'll have a handful of articles and other things you might listen to or read just to get different voices uh, as you reflect on this topic. And as I mentioned in July, we've been looking at refuge, what is truly a refuge for our heart, and how it's the, the refuge is an unlikely, takes us in an unlikely or maybe a surprising direction. Because normally we think of a refuge as something that is certain. <laughs> But, and in a way, it is something certain. You know, what is certain is uncertainty. <laughs> I know it sounds a little, you know, trite to say it that way. 
But it's interesting to see this uncertainty as a refuge. Like, I can count. It's dependable that everything is moving, that nothing is certain. Because when I really work with that as a refuge in my life, it just frees me up so much I'm not looking for certainty in relationships, like with a loved one. We don't know how it's going to unfold, or our world, or our health, or our financial well-being, or even, you know, the relative, uh, yeah, just like we might expect our friend or a colleague to be a reasonable person. And they might be reasonable for 20 years, according to our interpretation, and then something shifts, either in our relationship or in their life, and all of a sudden it appears that they're not reasonable. And it can feel like, well, how can that happen? That person, I thought they were this, and now they're, I see them as this. And that doesn't seem fair, because I was pretty sure they were this over here. And now they're acting this other way, this unexpected way. And that's a, how it's supposed to be. Like, how could that happen? And the thing is, we don't realize, of course, at least not completely, generally, we don't realize all the things we're imagining are certain. All the things that we're depending on as if they're certain until they get challenged. That's why these places of anxiety and uncertainty and fear, the irritants in our lives, that's why they're such important teachers. Ajahn Chah, in, in the article I put, uh, this other article that I encourage you to take a look at, not sure the standard of the noble ones. I might have mentioned this a couple of weeks ago but I didn't have the link for the article. Now it's in the resources. It's just 10 pages. It's a lecture or a talk that Achen Chah gave that somebody transcribed a number of years ago. Not sure the strategy or the standard, rather, of the noble ones. Noble ones is just a way of saying the wise people, enlightened, awakened people. Right? What is their standard? He says they have really only... You know, somebody who's training wisely has only two values, not, not sure and uh, sort of a persistence, patience. Patient endurance, I think, is the way they translated his word or his phrase, patient endurance, which means we're really sticking with the first value, that this Whatever I'm thinking, whatever I'm imagining, whatever I'm consciously or unconsciously dependent on, it's not sure. It's uncertain. And we're really training the heart to move through life in a more open and unfixed way. And of course, this isn't easy anyway, and it's especially not easy in those places in our lives that are stressful. So we often practice in places that are less stressful, like we have 30 minutes in the morning and we're sitting in one of our rooms and 
we've arranged it so nobody's bothering us except maybe the lawnmower or whatever. And there, maybe we can practice aligning with not sure, with the uncertainty, no expectations, no dependence on anything. Like not even being dependent on having a good sit or a bad sit or even knowing what we're doing. Sometimes we might have a good sit, have a lot of clarity, a lot of confidence. Other times during our 30-minute morning sit, 45-minute morning sit, it may be a real circus and wild and almost like we want to say, well, that was counterproductive. I, I probably shouldn't have sat. I probably would have been better off just reading the news or something like that because the mind was all over the place, worrying and imagining and reacting to our own imaginings and hating ourselves for being a bad meditator and on and on. But imagine if whatever it is, whether we're sitting or we're just taking care of business and our attitude, the, the real refuge was not sure. So then whenever anything happened, it would always be, oh yeah, like anything happened that we didn't expect to happen, whatever it was. We dropped something or something good happens, something bad happens. Oh, I guess it's like this sometimes. How do I know it's like this sometimes? Because it's like this now. This is this twist, this turn, this surprise. Or sometimes the shocking thing is it's the same. Nothing's changed. When are things going to change? God, give me some change. <laughs> this sameness is driving me crazy. You know, wake up, make the kid oatmeal, go to work, do this, do that, go home, make dinner, go to sleep, wake up. Oh, maybe it's like this sometimes, where things have the appearance of being the same old, same old. Okay, that's interesting. Like, I'm not going to be dependent on something new happening. And for me, the same old, same old is much more scary. Maybe some of you are like that than, you know, crises or whatever. I mean, yeah, I don't want to think too. I don't, I don't want crises, so don't, don't go stir the pot for me. Let the air out of my car tires or, or worse. But, but you know how it is, it's like, it's what scares us is really unique to each of us. You know, how we've been conditioned, what we've gotten used to, and what for us is in a way out of the box or not acceptable. But whatever it is, we want to get interested in that. Because if even on an intellectual level, this not being sure is uh, feeling skillful as a refuge, then it will show up all the places consciously, unconsciously, we're dependent on things being sure, on being fixed, that I can count on that. 
So this is Ajahn Chah, or no, I'm sorry, this is Ajahn Amaro, who's a student of Ajahn Chah. This article is also in the um, collection of articles. It's a short one, Inviting Fear. And he wrote here, by turning to face the inarguable facts of nature, the habit of investing in unstable realms is interrupted. Right? The unstable realms of our imaginings, the way the world is, the way my, co- my partner is, <clears throat> the way my health is. I'm sure many of us, maybe you yourself, you know, thought we were healthy until we realized we had COVID. You know, we had to isolate or maybe even got really sick. It shines the light of wisdom on the issue, reveals we've been looking for certainty in the wrong place, and thus frees up the attention to where security can be found. And he goes on to talk about security is found in what we call in early Buddhism, the triple gem, or refuges of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And Buddha isn't a person, Buddha is this... uh, Awaken, awakening or opening this awareness that isn't judging, isn't discriminating. It's, that's why opening, openness is a nice word, that open, allowing presence. Right? And just check that as a refuge right now. Like whatever it is, our experience of the body, mind, the moment, isn't it conceivable, possible for us to sense the rightness, the trustworthiness of just being wide, open, relaxed. And we don't, it doesn't mean we have to explain anything to ourselves about openness or even define it. Because it's not the idea of openness that we're taking refuge in. It's really more for lack of a better way of saying it, it's the activity of, or the way of relating, of being open, undefended, not dependent. I think I mentioned last Sunday morning, um, before we ended, right before I ended, I wanted to, but I, I can't remember for sure if I mentioned it, but it's a beautiful simile from Ajahn Chah, this Thai, meditation master, Buddhist monk who died in the 90s, 1990s, um, of the river of life, you could say. And on one bank of the river is happiness, getting what you want. On the other bank is unhappiness, not getting what you want. And life is like a log floating on the river. And the idea, happiness, real happiness, not the happiness of getting what we want, having the conditions that we prefer. As nice as that is, it's nice to have the conditions we like and to not have the circumstances that we don't like. So I'm not, no one should be suggesting the, the opposite. But even having the conditions I want, there's a shadow, which is holding as if I can actually hold to the conditions I like, right? We can. So even the bank of happiness, having what we want is dangerous if we cling. Just like if the bank of unhappiness, having what we don't like, 
we might cling to the idea of not this. And then we're suffering. That's, that, that's the glue. It's the fear of having what we don't want. The fear of it, the attachment to that fear is what gets us stuck on that bank. Right? Like, even if I'm not dead, my fear of death is a real burden for me. I don't have to die to be afraid of death. It actually might resolve my fear of death, dying. Right? Who knows? So, this image of like how to be in the river of life without getting entangled with ideas of happiness or unhappiness. Or you could say, without being afraid of happiness or unhappiness. We're not afraid of getting what we like. We're not afraid of not getting or getting what we don't like. But we're not going to cling, we're not going to take refuge in either you know, avoiding getting what we don't like or getting what we do like because all of that is uncertain. So if I dodge the cancer bullet one year, it doesn't mean I can't get cancer the next year. Or if I, you know, have enough financial resources one year, it doesn't make financial insecurity go away. Or if my relationship with a, a partner or a group of friends is going well, it's still uncertain. You know, it may be really nice now, feel really harmonious now, but who knows how it will unfold? I don't know. So in terms of the refuges of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, we realize that this capacity to be open in this non-discriminating, non-judging way, that's actually dependable not the circumstances of our lives, but to be relating to the circumstances in the moment in an open way. And then in terms of the actual conditions that we're opening to, what's dependable? Well, what is dependable is that they're changing. So as bad as it gets, it never gets static. It keeps changing. <laughs> and as good as it can get, it's never static. It keeps changing. And that's dependable. It may not be the answer we want, but there is a refuge, right? The capacity to relate with openness, what we mean by Buddha. When we take refuge in Buddha, remember, somebody who lived 2,500 years ago isn't going to be that helpful. The teachings, I think, are pretty helpful. But the Buddha himself can't save us. But the idea of being open, because that's something that's here and now, that's a capacity we all have, that's what we mean by Buddha, that's dependable. And that what we open to, Dharma, the way it is, is emotion. And if it doesn't seem emotion, see if you can become a little bit more curious, a little bit more humble, a little bit more um, like relaxed so that you're allowing the moment, the conditions in the moment to reveal themselves instead of projecting something onto the moment, you'll see this 
you know, the, the truth of impermanence, and nicha is the Pali word, the ephemeral, changing, uncertain, unreliable, ungovernable, insubstantial nature. And, and we often want to think of this in some subtle way, but it's the way it always is. So whatever the sort of more gross level of what we call our experience, our life, this is anicca. This is the uncertain, unreliable, ephemeral, insubstantial, uncertain, not sure nature. But it's a particular frame because, and we need, it seems, it can seem artificial, like, well, if we're just opening to the truth of things, why do I, you know, why are you telling me the way it is? Well, because we don't realize that there's this other frame that just happens almost instinctually, which we could call ignorance, right? This is the legacy of our human culture, right? Where we've been taught that things are substantial and permanent and set. So we need these teachings from somebody wise, like the Buddha, who says, okay, there's this refuge, let's call it Dhamma or Dharma, the way it is. And the essence of Dharma is this not sure, this uncertain, this ephemeral, insubstantial, not dependable, not reliable nature. It's always here and now. Don't beat yourself up if it uh, initially doesn't seem right. Just keep relaxing and being curious and let the truth of the moment reveal itself. We don't have to put a spin. We use the idea of Dhamma, that things are uncertain, to as a counterweight to the bad programming we've gotten. Right? So then it takes the bad programming away and we can actually, in a sense, connect with things as they are. And we'll see, was the Buddha right? Are things uncertain, ephemeral, not dependable, unreliable? Always in motion. You know, like we think, well, Mark, common ground. You know, Kim. We, ju- we have all these nouns, we just chair, leaf blower or whatever that, weed whip, and, and everything all of a sudden feels quite solid. But there's nothing, there's no mark here. It's just activity. Whatever we mean by that word, that designating word mark, me, it's a, it's a just a lot of activity of thought, emotion, sensation. Minneapolis isn't a thing in any kind of permanent solid, right? It's just a lot of activity. Exactly where, when you cross the Lake Street Bridge, exactly where does it become St. Paul? You know, it's like, no, no, this is, it's funny how we are with these sort of fixed, the, the dependence on fixedness. My idea, that was my idea. Always this, uh, so when we use this teaching on not sure, the ephemeral nature, it's really, like I said, to diffuse ignorance, this wrong view, this habit of projecting certainty, permanence, fixedness, as if that's 
the appropriate way to connect and to relate as if. And then the third refuge, Sangha, is really this uh, possibility of harmonizing no matter what's going on. But we can only harmonize with the truth of the moment, let's say, if we're Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, with that openness, being open to the ephemeral, changing, uncertain nature, then and only then we can really harmonize and respond, participate from that place of harmonizing. We can't harmonize theoretically, like even just a moment with your cat or dog or a moment with your partner or friend. Harmonizing, we have to be in that open place, open. If we if we're think we're connecting with our friend as a, like, I know who my friend is. We've been living together for 30 years. You know, I know who my friend is here. Well, then you can bow. We're not connected with our friend. You know, we're attached to some idea, some fixed idea, which is probably on some level, whether they're conscious of it or not, oppressive for our friend and oppressive for ourselves. Any fixedness, any attachment to the idea of our cat, our friend, or whatever, is, is kind of, again, to be a provocative, it's a bit of an abomination, because it doesn't fit reality. So the Sangha, the sort of beautiful, compassionate participation to harmonize no matter the conditions, to respond appropriately, requires that intimacy. And that's really the practice. So let me just end. I'll read a little bit from that article that I recommended you take a look at. And again, the title is, it's in the chat and it's in our blog on our website, Not Sure, the Standard of the Noble Ones, the Awakened Ones. And it's a Dharma talk by Ajahn Chah. And he writes here, or he spoke probably, and then they transcribed it. When it comes to training the heart, it isn't easy to find a good standard if you haven't yet developed a witness within yourself. In most external matters, we can rely on others for feedback. But when it comes to using the Dhamma as a standard, do we have the Dhamma yet? Right? Are we connected with the way things are? And he goes on, are we thinking rightly or not? And even if it's right, do we know how to let go of rightness or are we still clinging to it? Yeah. So even when we have some clarity, some wisdom, do we end up trying to hold on to it as if, oh, I got it now. So he continues, you must contemplate until you reach the point where you let go. This is the important thing. Until you reach the point where there isn't anything left, where there is neither good nor bad, this means you throw out everything. If it's all gone, then there's no remainder. If there's some remainder, then it's not all gone. Right? So we're being open and we're recognizing the uncertainty, the not sureness of the present moment so much that every habit of the mind to make something sure, it's not about not having an idea it's about the mind not fixing on any of the ideas that come and go in the mind, as if it's sure. 
because some ideas might be useful in a moment and some ideas might be not so useful, but none of the ideas we need to cling to as sure as some permanent truth. It may be a relatively useful idea in this moment, but we let it go because there isn't anything that's worthy of grabbing a hold of as if it were certain. And that's just an interesting way to have a political argument with a friend, like how to have a conversation about abortion, about whatever, and to formulate a view and let it be like sand through the fingers. Doesn't mean it wasn't in that moment a wise way to formulate a view. It just means why cling to it? You could always reformulate the same view perhaps, but maybe it will be slightly different three minutes down the road when you reformulate it. A little bit more grounded, a little bit less, you know, um, about being right or being, you know, so many of our opinions and views and ideas are this sort of, in this world of competition, you know, one upping, well, I'll say this, not because it resonates with my life experience, but because I'm being strategic, because this person said that, so then I'll say this, you know, it's like chess. And it's all about significance and self-importance, or at least a lot of it is. Whether we know it or not, fitting in, belonging, because we're social animals. And the world of our social relation is often these conversations, this talking we do together. And so we should, of course, that so much of our conversations with each other is really about taking care of those imperfectly, taking care of those emotional needs. But it can set up this uh, sort of wrong, unhelpful relationship to thought and to ideas as if that's going to provide a refuge. So just to finish this up, so in regard to this training of the mind, sometimes we may say it's easy. It's easy to say, but hard to do, very hard. It's hard in that it doesn't conform to our desires. Sometimes it seems almost as if the angels were helping us out. Everything goes right. Whatever we think or say seems to be just right. Then we go and attach to that rightness, and before long, we go wrong, and it all turns bad. This is where it's difficult. We don't have a standard to gauge things by. So what's the standard? Not sure. And I think, I don't know if it was, uh, maybe Thich Nhat Hanh, like he just encouraged people to tag on, whenever you say something out loud, silently in your mind just tag on, maybe not sure. Well, who knows? Who knows? But just one way or another, find your own way to operate as a human being in your relationships, in your world of responsibilities and duties, and just keep this not sure, this uncertainty, just keep playing with it as a standard, as a refuge to live by, being open in a way that reveals the not-sureness, the uncertainty in the moment. And it's almost like, ask yourself an open-ended question like, could this, be the re could this be a useful refuge? 
for this heart, this uncertainty. And remember, our wise teachers, they said, yeah, it is a 180 degree turn compared to where we normally, traditionally have looked for safety. So why wouldn't we check it out? I mean, unless you, I mean, if somebody really has safety that is never subject to challenge, then you're golden. But for the rest of us, you know, who are looking for a refuge, maybe we should check it out. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.